our insufficiency in the hands of a sufficient God. This morning, we're going to begin to look at the story of Gideon. It is such a thick story that we're actually going to look at Gideon for a couple of weeks. And so I want to focus on verses 1 through 32, which encompass uh, where Israel is and the initial call of Gideon to be a judge to deliver the people. And we will see our insufficiency in the hands of a sufficient God. Uh, Just last month, the Golden State Warriors, led by a future Hall of Famer, we're talking about basketball, okay, so if that's not you, just stick with me, here it is. Uh, The Golden State Warriors, led by a future Hall of Famer, Steph Curry, won the NBA national title. I love basketball, so you're going to get basketball illustrations. Now for Steph Curry, this was actually his fourth national title, and he's won, on top of that, the League Most Valuable Player Award two times. But this year, for the first time, he won an award he'd been wanting for some time. He won the finals MVP, saying that in the final series, the best player on the court from both teams, it was Steph Curry. And I I like Steph Curry. I like his game. But one thing I also like about Steph Curry is I like his humility. He never seems to want to claim the glory for himself, even even in his acceptance speech. Right. This is they've already given out the, the, the championship trophy to the team. And now they just give out the award to him. And even in his acceptance speech, he, he slipped up one time. And as he's talking, he said, I and he stopped and he corrected it. And he said, we he went back and, and we the team, even an award that's designated just for him. He he wants to speak in we terms. And one of the one of the things he said when he was asked about it is he said, everybody on this stage had a part in this. From the front office to the coaches to the players. And though the MVP trophy only goes to one person, Curry, he's he's right in his humility. Because what he understands is that on his own, he is insufficient to win the trophy and ultimately the NBA Finals. You see, if you don't know this, it doesn't matter how good of a basketball player you are. Because basketball is a game that requires 10 people on the court. Five of them are on the same team. And if you are the best player to ever step foot on a basketball court, but no one else on your team can do their job, you have insufficient resources to accomplish what it is that you ultimately want to accomplish. Because every great basketball player knows that on their own, they are insufficient. They might act like that's not the case, but every good basketball player knows that on their own, they're insufficient. So a person like Steph Curry, for me, his, his humility, it resonates with me. And maybe, maybe it resonates with you a little bit because I think it hits at something that we all deep down know. We are insufficient people. Uh, maybe you feel that insufficiency most at your job. Maybe, maybe you feel insufficient in your studies as a student. Maybe you feel this morning insufficient as a parent. Maybe there's somebody right now sitting in this room and you feel, yes, you believe the gospel, you believe in the grace of God, but you feel insufficient as a Christian, even to be considered a member of Christ's church. I'm going to be honest with you up front this morning. The aim of this message is not to try to convince you in any way that those feelings of insufficiency are wrong. I'm not trying to lean away from that. I want to press into that a little bit more. We are insufficient people. But I don't want to just stop there. Some of y'all are like, I should have stayed home. That's not, that's not what I came 
that's not what I wanted this morning. I should have stayed home. If all you're going to do is tell me something, I already know. Well, good. I'm glad you know it. You are in a good place. Because after we establish the fact that we are insufficient people, it is only then that we can turn and see the beauty of a sufficient God. See, I came this morning to tell you that insufficient people are the perfect candidate to be used in the hands of an insufficient or in the hands of a sufficient God. That's it. That's the sermon. Have a good day. You may go home. That's 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 what I want to tell you. I didn't get enough. Amen. So we're going to have to press on. That was your out. That was your out. And you missed it. If we could only believe that insufficient people are the perfect candidates to be used in the hands of a sufficient God, how that would change our lives. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through the beginning of Gideon's story. And there are three things I want to point out along the way. You know, last week I had six points, so I had to shorten it a little bit. We got three. Okay, Uh, there are three things that I want you to see. And and the order matters because what the author is going to do is he's going to spend a good deal of time on the front end establishing the insufficiency of everybody involved in this story, except for one. He's going to establish the insufficiency of the nation of Israel. Then he's going to establish the insufficiency of Gideon. And it's only after he's dealt with those two things in full will he then turn and make a case for the sufficiency of God. Again, there's a reason for that. Because we will never be willing to cast ourselves as insufficient people into the hands of a sufficient God until we can honestly come to the place where we recognize our own insufficiencies. The author of Judges doesn't shy away from that. He wants us to see insufficiency. So here's here's the first thing I want to draw your attention to. The first thing the author points us to is the insufficiency of Israel. So look with me again at the at the first 10 verses of chapter six. The author records the Israelites. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years and they oppressed Israel because of Midian. The Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves and strongholds. And and whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land. Even as far as Gaza, they left nothing for Israel to eat as well as no sheep, Ox or donkey for the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. And when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. And he said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. Now, in Judges 6. We find Israel back in the cycle of sin that we have seen throughout the story. This is the fourth major judge that we've encountered. And as we have already seen, there's a pattern. So what happens is Israel sins. And as a result of that sin, they are placed by God in captivity as punishment for that sin. 
And after some time goes by, that captivity proves to be too much for the people of God. So the people cry out to God and God being a faithful God keeps his promise to his people. He raises up a judge through whom God will deliver. And make no mistake, the hero is never the judge. It is God working through them to bring about deliverance. God is always the hero. Now, while the judge is alive, after he's delivered them, the judge, while the judge is alive, the people avoid somehow the sin of idolatry. The story never really tells us how they avoid it. They just don't fall back into idolatry until the judge dies. And then the people start the cycle all over again. Now, up until this point in the story of the judges, the judges have primarily been highlighted as the best of them. Right. You've got Othniel, who we looked at first, who is the paradigm by which we evaluate all the judges. He's the best of the best. Then you've got Ehud. That dude was a beast. He was a warrior. He was willing to put himself in in difficult situations. And then you follow that by Deborah. And she was a beast used by God as a prophetess and a judge. But now we come to the fourth judge. And the story starts to change a little bit. We'll begin to notice something about the judges. See, at the beginning, the judges were a picture of faithfulness. They were distinct from the nation. But as we move through these remaining three judges, we'll start to see that they look less and less like faithful servants and more and more like the sinful nation they're being used to deliver. And so Gideon is in his own insufficiencies is a reflection of the insufficiencies of the nation. But the author author wants us to see the insufficiency of Israel. Even in the very first verse of the chapter, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years. The nation was insufficient. They were unable to keep the covenant expectations on their own. You remember the covenant expectations, right? I mean, in theory, it's not that hard. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. All you got to do is worship me. Don't worship anybody else. On paper, that seems pretty simple, but they can't do it. They are insufficient to keep the covenant expectation. They are insufficient in their ability to worship God and God alone. Now, it's easy to throw shade at Israel, but that's you and me every day of the week. And as a result of Israel's insufficiency, God did what a holy God must do. He punished them for their sin. But chapter six is interesting because in all the other accounts thus far, the cycle's been pretty clear cut, hasn't it been? The people sinned in the eyes of God. God judged and delivered them into captivity. The consequences were too much. They cried out to God again, not because they understood the weight of their sin and they were repenting. They just didn't like the consequences. But God being a faithful God delivers them. But here in the introduction To Israel and the story of Gideon, two significant details are added that have never been added up until this point. Did you catch them? Well, see, first, the author notes for the first time Israel's attempt to overcome the consequences on their own. Did you see it there in verse two? Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountain caves and strongholds. Why? Well, we keep reading. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites... Amalekites and other people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. That's a lot of people. And it says they and their camels were without number and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So, so this is an interesting addition, one we've not seen so far. Uh, so far. 
the author wants us to see that it's not that they were just enduring these consequences. They were actively trying to overcome the consequences of their sin on their own. And maybe Israel had done this every other time. We don't know. But here God wants us to see it. And I think the reason God puts it here is it's positioned to teach us something. See, Israel, before they cried out to God, they tried to overcome the consequences of their sin on their own. Again, maybe it's happened every time. We don't know. But God wants us to see that they attempted to fix their problems on their own. But here's the thing. Without reading any more of the story, we can pretty much predict how this thing's going to go. Because it's never gone well when we've tried to overcome the reality or the consequences of our sin on our own. It didn't go well for Adam and Eve in the garden when they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and found out it was an insufficient covering. It didn't go well for David when he tried to cover up his adultery by first trying to deceive Bathsheba's husband that the baby wasn't David's, but it was actually Uriah's. And when that didn't work because Uriah was holier than David... He went ahead and had the man man killed. And he found out soon enough that that was an insufficient way to cover up sin. And so we can pretty much predict that it's not going to go well in Judges 6 because, because they, like everyone who has gone before them, they are insufficient to overcome the judgment of the Lord. We have evidence upon evidence upon evidence that we are insufficient to deal with the reality of our sin and the sin of this broken world. So here's my question. Then why in the world is God still so often our last resort rather than our first choice? And here's the thing. I'm not just talking to unbelievers like, oh, he's talking to the people that don't trust Jesus. I'm talking. I am talking to them. If you are here and you've not trusted in Jesus, I I want you to know that 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 longing, that yearning, that aching, that pain that you experience living in a broken world that you have yet to be able to to overcome. I don't care how much you self-medicate by visiting the street pharmacist. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You can distract yourself with the pleasures of this world. You can obtain status and wealth. But there is a longing that if you are honest, you have yet to be able to fill in your life. And the reason for that is because you are insufficient to overcome the sin in your life. But there is a God who is sufficient. So y'all got to stick with me because we're going to talk about that God in just a minute. But I'm posing that question to those of you who are here who claim to be in Jesus as well. Why is it that God is so often our last resort rather than our first choice? We as Christians, we still wrestle with sin. We struggle with living in a broken world. We experience pain and hardship and persecution. And let's be honest, I'm not picking on you. I'm right there with you. How often do we as Christians, despite all that we have seen, despite the deliverance God has done for us, we convince ourselves that this one, I got it. I can rely on my ingenuity. I can rely on my bank account. I can rely on my friends. I can rely on my spouse, whatever it might be. But we soon find out that we cannot overcome. And what unnecessary chaos we cause when God is our last resort rather than our first choice. Some of y'all this week are about to walk into some trials and some temptations and some persecution. And I am pleading with you. Place yourself in the hands of a sufficient God first and save a lot of heartache along the way. Israel finds themselves in chaos. They try. They try. It's a good plan. If they're going to steal our food, we're going to hide our food. They're going to destroy our homes. We're going to hide our homes. But it doesn't work. So what does Israel do when they cannot overcome on their own? Well, they do what they should have done to start with. Verse six. So Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. 
But there's something else that's unique about this introduction. See, first, the author wants us to see they tried to cover it up on their own. But there's something else that's added that we've not seen before. Not only does the author record Israel's attempt to overcome God's consequences, but we see for the first time God's response to them that isn't a judge. Look at what it says, beginning with me in verse 7. So the people cry out to God. And the way the story is gone is they cried out to God and God raised up Othniel. God raised up Ehud. Or you get to Deborah. Deborah had been judging. And so God commissions her to continue to do what she's already been doing. But here, God doesn't do that right away. It says, when the Israelites cried out to him, this is verse 7. When they cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. Not a judge, a prophet. And he said to them, this is what the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. So before God raises up a deliverer, he sends a prophet. But even this response by God, is evidence of just how faithful he is because he heard their cries. He listened to their plea. But here's the thing. As I, as I read this response from God in my initial read, so I'm going to give you some insight into my, my process. I'm reading through this statement, right? Preparing the sermon. And, and I'll be transparent. The first time I read what the prophet said, I read it as if God is speaking to them with anger in his voice. Right? He's mad at them. That was kind of my initial thought. Like, who are you? I did this. I did this. I did this. I promise I'm faithful and you failed me. Sometimes it's tough, right? Because when we're reading, we got to assume tone. You know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all have messed up some relationships because you read the wrong tone into those text messages. I'm just don't don't act like I'm wrong in this. But the more I began to read this, the more I began to believe that the tone of God through the prophet is not one of anger. It's one of compassion. More than anything, God is showing compassion on them. Yes, he's pointing out their sin, but that's a compassionate thing to do. God doesn't always point out sin because he's angry. A lot of times he points out sin, especially in the lives of his people, because he loves you. But as he's pointing out of the sin, their sin, he's reminding them. He says, listen, I am the God who delivered you from slavery. I am the God who has consistently delivered you from oppression. I am the God who did what I said I would do. I have been faithful and you have been disobedient. I I get the feeling that this is God speaking as a father longingly to his child saying, I want you to see that I am good like that, that you can trust me. I am for you and not against. The problem is not that I failed you. The problem is that you failed. I've always been here. The fact that I am speaking to you testifies to my faithfulness. And in essence, God is reminding them that even though they have failed to keep their end of the covenant, even though they have failed to worship him and him alone, God is still faithful to his promises. And listen, this says something to us about our God. That should drive us to worship just a little bit that he's faithful to his promises. And it teaches us that God's faithfulness has never ultimately depended on your faithfulness to him. God's love for you has never ultimately depended on your love for him. God's pursuit of you has never ultimately depended on your pursuit of him. God is faithful because he's a faithful God. God loves because he's a loving God. God pursues you because he's a pursuing God. And none of these things are because of us. They exist in spite of us. 
The amazing thing about our God is that God is not quick to write anybody off. I mean, have you ever thought about that when you've read through some of the stories of the Bible? How quickly some of these heroes we would have written off, but God doesn't. Adam and Eve's story didn't end when they ate the apple. Moses' story didn't end when he doubted God's ability to even use him at the burning bush. Israel's story didn't end when they complained about their living conditions after God had just freed them from slavery in Egypt. David's story didn't end when he committed adultery and murder. Peter's story didn't end when he denied Jesus three times. What I'm trying to tell you is that our God's not like us. He's not quick to write people off because he knows that the most inadequate and insufficient can be redeemed in the hands of a sufficient God. You aren't in this place this morning because you managed to avoid big sins. Let's be honest. I know some of y'all's testimony. Your testimony is the things that had you that should have taken you down did not get you and keep you because God did not give up on you. Now, let me try to add a little application to this before we move on. We got to move on. Our world has an obsession with cancel culture. And can I just tell you, it is the complete opposite of the grace we claim to depend on. I know, Michael, you don't you don't get it, though. You don't get it. That person on Twitter, they, they were racist. They were sexist. They were elitist. They were offensive. They are slanderers. They are liars. Well, Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. The only reason you are in this place singing the songs you are singing, praying the prayers that you are praying is because you have a sufficient God that didn't write you off when you should have been canceled. And I wonder what it would look like if the church in America actually lived like the God they claim to love. What would it look like if we weren't as quick to write people off? But I'm just going to tell you the only way we will do that is when we remember how patient God has been with us. It is his kindness and patience that has led us to repentance. So we see here in the beginning, even in the introduction of Gideon's story, that Israel is insufficient on their own. They cannot deal with the consequences of their sin. But the author doesn't stop there, right? I mean, you'd think you'd be like, but don't worry, Gideon's here. He's got you. No, I mean, the author's like, I mean, I'm going to introduce you to Gideon, but he's not much better. A Gideon's story. So let me show you second this, the insufficiency of Gideon. And Gideon's story begins there in 11 and 12. It says the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Aphra, which belonged to Yoaz, the Bezrai. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. That's funny. I'm going to show you that. That's funny. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. So we have Gideon. We're introduced to him. We get, a, we get a glimpse into who he is and his character. And right away we get a sense that he isn't going to be one of the boldest. He isn't going to be one of the most qualified. He's not going to be like the judges we've seen before. Because what we see right off the bat in the first two verses is we see the insufficiency of his abilities. Let me show you. It says that he is threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. You know what threshing wheat is, right? I'm asking. If you do, I'm not going to tell you. You, Okay, here's what threshing wheat is. Threshing wheat happens after the grain's already been cut down and it's dried out. And threshing is is you have to take the seed heads and remove them from the stems. That's thresh. So it's a lot of work. And normally this would be done in the fields. 
Because there's no point in bundling it all up, moving it somewhere else, if you're going to have to separate it and still take some of it and throw it back out, right? So normally they would do it in the fields, but that's not where Gideon is. Gideon is, is doing this work in the wine press in order to try to hide it from the Midianites. So, so let, me, let me try to flesh this out. Here you have a judge who has no track record of confronting those who are oppressing him. He has no track record of fighting back. He is hiding from them. The Hebrew word there to hide actually could be translated to flee. I mean, you have someone who is actively running from the enemy. And God says, hey there, valiant warrior. I mean, there's some irony in what the angel says when he appears to Gideon, verse 12. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now, before we're tempted to think, okay, all right, we were just sleeping on Gideon. He has some skills, right? We just didn't know about it. He's laying low. He could fight. He could fight. We we just didn't know it. Nah, even Gideon knows this isn't the case. Because look at what happens in verses 14 and 15. It says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I'm sending you. So it freaks him out a little bit when God says, I'm sending you in your strength. And he said, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's family. Gideon said, there is nothing in me that qualifies me to do what you are calling me to do. Even Gideon knew that he didn't have the ability to accomplish what God was calling him to. But don't, don't miss this. Look at what the Lord says to Gideon in verse 16. He doesn't say, you got this, you just got to believe in yourself. He doesn't say, Gideon, you just don't know what you're capable. No, no, no. He says, but I will be with you. The Lord said to him, you will strike Midian down as if you were one man. Like the God's not about building his self-esteem right here. God's saying, no, no, no. It's not that you've got it within you. I'm going to be with you, Gideon. I'm going to fight for you, Gideon. You see, God doesn't use insufficient people to somehow make them more sufficient. God uses insufficient people to show off his sufficiency. God's deliverance is meant to show off his power and glory. And what qualifies Gideon to be a judge, it's not his ability. It's not his strength. It's not his experience. We'll see in a minute. It's not even it's his faith. The only thing that qualifies Gideon for service is the promise of divine presence. If God is with me, I can do it. And church, I'm trying to tell you this morning, if God is with us, you have all that you need. If God is indeed for you and not against you, you have all that you need. But here's the thing with Gideon. He doesn't believe that God's with him. See, not only do we see the insufficiency of his abilities, we see the insufficiency of his faith. Because look at what he says in verse 13. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Now, there are two things worth noting about Gideon's lack of faith. First, don't miss that Gideon blames God for the turmoil that they are facing. I mean, he's he's basically saying we're only experiencing this because God has left us. Like if he was really with us, then there's no way a good God could let this happen to us. There is no recognition of the fact that they broke the covenant. There is no recognition of the fact that they sinned against a holy God. But what's interesting is that the angel of the Lord doesn't even address that issue. Right. He doesn't even address the issue of you're experiencing what you're experiencing because you sin. Why? Because the prophet already talked about that. Angels like I ain't going to listen. If you're not going to listen to the prophet, you're not going to listen to me anyway. The prophet just told you that you're here because you did not obey God. But whatever. 
But, but there's a second aspect to this that's very significant. You see, not only does Gideon blame God for the current turmoil, but Gideon, Gideon does what so many of us do. Gideon begins to believe that the presence of struggle means the absence of God. I'll say it again. Gideon is doing what so many of us do and beginning to believe that the presence of struggle means the absence of God. I mean, just look again at verse 13. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now. The Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. So there's, there's a math equation going on in Gideon's mind. If we are in captivity to Midian, it must mean that God has abandoned us. And the irony, don't miss this, is that at this moment, Gideon is talking to the Lord himself. God is not with us. He's talking to the angel of the Lord. But, but, but. The author gives more emphasis because in the very next verse in verse 14, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord. It says the Lord turned to him and said, and the Hebrew word there is Yahweh turned to him and said the word of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. There is representative of God himself. So Gideon is literally standing in the presence of God as he's speaking to the angel of the Lord. He's speaking to God himself. Now, listen, I'm not trying to say all of this to just point out the, the insufficiencies of Gideon so we can look at this guy and be like, what a chump. And there's a temptation to do that. Like, what a fool. Now, we'll see in a minute. He didn't realize he was talking to the angel. It's not till later even understands that this is God. But I'm trying to show you that like we're Gideon. This is us. How often we can be tempted to believe that when things aren't going well, God is absent. That when pain comes, when trials come, when sickness comes, when loss comes, we convince ourselves that God must not care. But I want to tell you this morning that God has a track record of showing up in some of the most amazing ways in the midst of the most trying of circumstances. I'm trying to tell you that that suffering is not the absence of God. More often than not, it is the experience through which we experience God in a more meaningful way. Scripture attests this. You don't have to take my word. Just ask Israel fleeing Egypt. It's as they have a sea in front of them and an army behind them when they are in trouble where God is present as a cloud by day and a fire by night. I mean, you can ask Elijah. In the midst of despair and the dark night of the soul, he's hiding in a cave. There's an earthquake and a fire and God's not there. But he hears a still, small whisper and he knows that God is with him. I'll do you one better. One of my favorites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they refused to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and the punishment was to be thrown into the fire, they they got thrown in. God didn't stop them from getting thrown into the fire. But watch this. While three entered, four were present. Because God was in the midst of the fire with them. He didn't keep them from going in. He didn't stop it. But he was there in the midst of it with them. But I love this. We miss this because he protected them. Three went in. Three walked out, which means God stayed in the fire. He's still there waiting for the next person to come in and meet him in the midst of the chaos and the frustration and the trouble. I'm trying to tell you, God is present in suffering. And pain is not the absence of God. But I'll give you the greatest of all. Just ask Jesus. Because if we fail to believe that God is near and working in suffering, then we forfeit the truth of the gospel. We are ignoring the blood that was shed. 
the body that was offered so that we might have access to God, the father. What I'm getting at is there is testimony after testimony after testimony that suffering is never the absence of God. As Peter says, often it is the fire by which God is forging our faith. But Gideon failed to see it. And so here, as Gideon's story begins, we're forced to reckon with the fact that Israel is insufficient to accomplish the deliverance that they need. And that left to himself, Gideon ain't going to pan out so well. He is insufficient to be a faithful deliverer. And the only hope that they have is for somebody to be sufficient. So here's where I want to leave you this morning. I'm bringing it home. Stick with me. See, if the author stopped there, we have a really bad story. Like we go home and we're more depressed than when we walked into this place. That's not my goal. That's not my goal. So if you've tuned out, just tune in for this. Okay, it's the good part. We've seen the insufficiency of Israel. We've seen the insufficiency of Gideon. And now the author wants us to see the sufficiency of God. And in these last verses, something so interesting happens. In a prophetic manner, through an unlikely source, there is a declaration of just how sufficient our God is. So let me, let me show you how we get here. So after this encounter with the angel, sorry, let me backtrack before I get it. I, I told you he didn't realize it was the angel of the Lord. So then what happens with Gideon? I'm going to fill in the blanks, right? We're not going to talk about it all, but I'll fill in. So then what happens with Gideon is Gideon begins to believe, all right, this guy's calling me to do something for God. And so what he does is, listen, let me go get some food. Let me come back. Let's share a meal together. That's significant because in both Genesis and Exodus, the sharing of the meal was a way in which a, a, a commitment was made. And so he's basically saying, if you're saying that God's going to do this, you've got to commit to me. We're going to share a meal together. And I love it because he still doesn't realize it's the angel of the Lord. So he goes home. He prepared, prepares food, some unleavened bread. He, he brings some broth. He comes back. The angel of the Lord says, all right, you got the meal. Set it on this rock. And so Gideon's like, we're about to eat, right? And so he puts the food out. And then the angel of the Lord touches the rock with the staff. And what was meant to be a meal turns into worship because it becomes a sacrifice to the God to God. And Gideon says, oh, snap, this is God. And he does what we should do in the presence of God. He says, I'm done. I'm dead. And what does God say? Peace be with you. So now Gideon knows that God has not left him. So if nothing else, they should give him a little push if God asks him to do something hard. Well, God's about to ask him to do something really hard. Because after this encounter with the angel of the Lord takes place, Gideon is instructed to do something. Look with me, beginning in verse 25. If you got your Bibles, follow with me. I'm, oh, you got it up on the screen? All right, because I'm not going to control it, so you, you roll with it. Normally, I'm clicking buttons, but I'm, I'm in it, all right? Judges 25, on that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Here it is. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father. And cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. Uh, Pause. Take the idol and make a better altar. Make an altar to a real God. Okay, here we go. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord told him. I love Gideon. Here it is. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. At least he did it. Okay, at least he did it. Some of us don't make it to the at least we do it. Now, now I don't have a lot of time to press into this, but I do want to know, I want you to notice something. Notice that Gideon, before he is to deliver the people from captivity, 
from the consequence of their sin. He's instructed to deal with the idol, the cause of their sin. See, that's how good God is. Ultimately, he is not primarily concerned with making your physical life easy. He's not concerned about your comfort primarily. He's not concerned about the consequences primarily. He is concerned with your spiritual well-being. And God's so good that he refuses to neglect what the people were neglect. They just wanted to get out from the consequences. And God says the only way you can get out of the consequences is if you deal with the cause. Now, now there's an example worth following for those of us who are trying to be like our God here. Right. It's not enough. We've talked about this, but I'm pressing a little bit more. It's not enough for us to fight to simply remove the consequences of the sin that we are dealing with. Repentance, genuine repentance means dealing with the cause of it, because if all we do, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If all we do is deal with the consequences, it won't lead us to holiness. It'll lead us to better deceit. We'll get better at hiding our sins so that we don't have to face the consequences. But the only way to genuinely root it out is to, in some sense, ignore the consequences until we've dealt with the cause. And so Gideon, before he is to go fight the Midianites, he has to deal with the idols. And this is going to put him in direct conflict, not with uh, not only with the people in his hometown, but also his family. It's his father's idol. And he has some fear. And I'm not going to knock him for his fear. He says, listen, if I do this, they're going to come after me. He was right. He, his fear proves to be justified in this morning. Because look at what happens next. Verse 28. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down. The Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull offered up on the altar that it had been built. He did it. At least he did it. And it says, then they said to each other, who did this? And after they made a thorough investigation, so they're looking into it. They say, Gideon, son of Yoash, did it. Then the men of the city said to Yoash, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. They got him. Right. Gideon Gideon was afraid that this was going to happen if they tore down, if he tore down the altar. If he confronted the idolatry, that it would not turn out well for him. And here he is. He has the people of of the town outside his house saying, bring him out. We're going to kill him. And once again, we see his insufficiency because he didn't even come out to face them. Did you catch that? It's his daddy out there fighting. I'm going to get my daddy. That's what Gideon does. Oh, you trying to get me? I'm going to send my daddy out. And the irony is, as we see in verse 25, The idol belonged to the one who was defending him. And in a real sense, church, I mean, I stinking love the Bible. Like this makes what happens next so amazing because Yoash, Gideon's father, clearly isn't concerned about honoring God. I mean, he's a pagan at this point. How do you know this is the guy that had the altar that they were worshiping at? And yet in an attempt to defend his son, not God, Yoash, an idolatrous man, gives a prophetic declaration as to the sufficiency of Yahweh God. Uh, You don't see it, so I'm going to show it to you. Look with me beginning in verse 31. But Yoash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. That day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel since Yoash said, let, let Baal contend with him because he tore down his altar. Again, I love the Bible. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. 
So let me paraphrase for you what Yoash says. Remember, he doesn't really care about God. He's just he's trying to be a good dad, protect his son. But what he says is this. Hold on. Wait a minute. You're mad because Gideon tore down our idol. He knocked down our God and you want to defend Baal. But if Baal really is God, let him fight for himself. I'm telling you, church, if Baal really is God and he got knocked down by man, he needs to get himself up and fight for himself. Baal has not had a good run. It amazes me that Israel keeps going back to him. You remember Elijah, right? Like at the top of Mount Carmel. It's one of the most ridiculous scenes and the amazing scenes at the same time. Elijah's like, I'm tired of this. How long will y'all waver between two opinions? Let's settle this. All right, prophets, 450, go, you get ready. Go talk to your God. I'm going to get ready to talk to my, we're going to set up two, we're going to put them to the test. We're going to see whose God is real. And the prophets of Baal set up their altar, right? They, 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 they dancing around the Bible says, I mean, it's got to look silly, right? They're cutting themselves. I I like to imagine, I know they didn't have it, but I like to imagine Elijah in one of them like fold out chairs, like sits down, let's see what you got, right? And so, so they're dancing around that. I mean, they're into, they're singing, they're, all into the day and nothing happens. And, and then they start cutting themselves. And Elijah's like, well, I mean, they're kids out here. We got to put a stop to this. Okay. So he's like, all right, pause. You had your shot. Let me try. Takes the altar. Says, let's dump some water on it. Twelve jars of water. I don't know if you've tried to light a fire in the midst of like, like puddled water. It's, it's not a very easy thing to do. We had a fire last night. Still took a lead, like 20 minutes to make it. And it was dried wood. Okay. So that's no shade of it. He pours water on it. And he says, God, whoosh, it's gone. Like Baal doesn't have a good track record of defending himself. And they continue to worship. And once again, Baal has a self, has an opportunity to prove himself. And Yoash says, a real God can fight for himself. Now go with me here. This is what makes idolatry so ridiculous. I've said it before. I'm saying it again. We are prone to worship things that we create with our own hands. But the problem is if we create it, we got to defend it. If we craft for ourselves idols, and I'm not even just talking about Old Testament. You think about making like a little pagan looking thing. Like we craft money and we worship that. And if we create it, we got to fight to keep it. Now, now go with me. I mean, it's our idolatry is so insecure that the wind blows, the earth shakes and they fall down. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. I know I'm a mess. And the last thing I need is a God I got to pick up when he falls down. See, I need a God who's going to pick me up when I fall down, who has enough strength, enough sufficiency all in himself that he can reach down and grab me when I'm surely going to make a mess of things. So don't miss what Yoash is saying. He's preaching, church. He's saying that that if Baal really is God and he got knocked over by human hands, he needs to be able to get himself up. Church, the reason I got up out of bed this morning is to tell you that we serve a God that got himself up. Oh, yeah. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. We knocked him down. That's why Peter says you use lawless men to nail him to a cross and kill him. We knocked him down, but Jesus knew what was coming and said, I'm going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. So go with me. You use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. We serve a God that didn't need anybody to pick him up. 
We serve a God that got himself up. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He has proven to be a sufficient God. We see the sufficiency of God, not first and foremost in the fact that he can use insufficient. We don't, insufficient people, we don't even see the sufficiency of God first and foremost in the fact that he can save insufficient people. We see the sufficiency of God in the fact that when we knocked him down, he stood up and he defended himself. Oh, we can trust that we serve a sufficient God. Church, I'm trying to tell you, our God has never faltered. He has never failed. And the beauty of serving a sufficient God is we can place our weakness in his hands and know because he's proven it, that he is strong enough to carry our insufficiencies. And if he got up, surely he's got the power to get you through this week. Even in the midst of your insufficiencies. And so I'm pleading with you this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it to a close. You don't need to be God. You don't need any other God. You simply need to trust the God who has proven himself to be sufficient. To trust that when he promises, he's got the power to back it up. And I don't know about you, church, but I've yet to see him fail. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you this morning that you are sufficient all by yourself. We thank you that though you were crucified at the hands of lawless men, you didn't need some person to come and pick you up. That you got up all by yourself. We thank you for the gospel that declares to us that you are strong to save. And God, I pray this morning that you would give us a confidence in you that we would know that it is okay to be insufficient if we place our insufficiencies in your hands. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.